listen to Peter Margaritas on the Improv is No Joke podcast. Welcome to Improv is No Joke podcast, where it's all about becoming a more effective communicator by embracing the principles of improvisation. I'm your host, Peter Margaritas, the self-proclaimed chief edutainment officer of my business, The Accidental Accountant. My goal is to provide you with thought-provoking interviews with business leaders so you can become an effective improviser, which will lead to building stronger relationships with clients, customers, colleagues, and even your family. So let's start the show. Welcome to episode 42 of Improv is No Joke podcast. Thank you very much for downloading this episode. Today's guest is Rick Roberts, who's a clean comedian and does creative keynote speeches. Rick and I have a fun time discussing how the skills in performing stand-up and improv comedy has an application in today's business world. With stand-up comedy, it teaches brevity. I saw a quote that said, Brevity is the soul of lingerie. It should be long enough to cover the important parts, but short enough to make it interesting. The brevity in stand-up is the writing of the joke. You want to eliminate unnecessary words that get in the way of a great joke. As Rick states, those who are artists can take 30 pounds of clay and chisel it down to a piece of art. That's what a professional comedian does. The business application is in writing. In today's fast-paced business world, we have to write emails, memos, and reports with the same concept that a comedian has in writing a joke. Get to the point and move on. People don't have time to read a dissertation anymore. Stand-up also teaches us to be better at public speaking and presentations. When a comedian delivers a punchline, they need to pause and have the mental interaction with the audience before moving on to the next joke. Same thing when doing a speech or a presentation. You need to have a pause. You need to have that mental interaction with your audience. If not, all you're doing is speaking at them and not to them or with them. When you're speaking at them, your audience will revert to the conference prayer. I explain what the conference prayer is in the interview. When Rick was discussing how improv applies in today's business world, he reinforced everything I've been saying and writing about. He referred to a client that hired him to work with his team. The, the client described the group this way. They thought they were the best at everything. They were very competitive and would not listen to each other's ideas. Rick went in and demonstrated through improv exercises that the team needs to trust each other for the success of the group. I came up with a new way of describing what improv can do for your company. I was the closing keynote at the White Castle General Managers Leadership Conference this year. The theme of the conference was, it starts with me. In thinking about their conference theme and how to relate it to improv, I came up with this. It starts with me, and it's not about me, it's about us. That's what Rick was demonstrating with his client. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that one of my goals with this podcast is to help you begin to make changes in your work and personal lives so you can make better connections with others and create meaningful relationships. Many people have said that it takes 21 days to start a habit, which I learned is incorrect from Dr. John B. Molitor. 
John is a professor of psychiatry at Michigan State University. He said that the research shows that it takes 66 days to create a habit. So now we have to put in the extra work to create that muscle memory. That's why I created the Yes And Challenge, to help keep these principles in front of you so you can build up your improvisational muscle. To sign up, go to my website, petermargaritas.com, and scroll down to the Yes And Challenge call to action and click to register to begin building the productive habit of Yes And and the principles of improvisation. And remember to share your experiences on Twitter using the hashtag YesAndChallenge. If you're unsure what the Yes And Challenge is all about, Go back and listen to episode zero where I discuss this in detail. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you'd like to purchase a personalized signed copy of my book, Improv is No Joke, Using Improvisation to Create Positive Results in Leadership in Life for $14.99 and the shipping's free, please go to my website and you'll see the graphic on the homepage. Please allow up to 14 days for shipping. Well, with that said, let's get to the interview with Rick Roberts. Hey, welcome, everybody. I am with uh, a friend of mine, Rick Roberts, and I, I just want Rick to know I, I can't see him. He can't see me. We're doing this audio through, through Skype, but I know Rick is a big UK uh, basketball, football aficionado, and I'm wearing my UK hoodie today in honor of Rick having Rick as my guest. So, Rick, thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to spend some time with me on my podcast. Excellent. And I'm actually wearing my UK sweatshirt inside out and turned backwards until we break this two-game losing streak. Oh, good point. Maybe I should do the same thing. They're on tonight. Uh, I believe it's at 9 o'clock Eastern time against Georgia, and it's Musburger's last game. So, uh, yeah, I will turn mine inside out once we're done with this podcast. At least we can celebrate it's Musburger's last game. <laughs> exactly. We have something to look forward to. Rick, can you give everybody a, a little bit of, of your background? Uh, I, you know, they can go out and find you on, on the internets or whatever they call it these days, but, but I think you, you can do your background better justice than LinkedIn. Yeah, I started a comedy about a year after I got out of college, graduated in 1990 from a small school called Bethany College north of Wheeling near Ogilvy Park in West Virginia. I moved to Columbus, Ohio. Worked a couple of jobs. Uh, Simon & Schuster was the longest job I had, and that was the last job I had before I started stand-up. And, you know, joined an improv group and didn't have a big overhead back in those days. I think if I earned four fifty a month, I covered all my bills, including uh, splitting rent with two other comedians and my car payment and all that <laughs> stuff. And so I uh, did improv exclusively for about six or seven years. I would do stand-up a little bit on the side when things were slow with improv, but didn't really start focusing on the stand-up until probably 96 or so. And ever since then, it's been comedy, pedal to the metal all the way, but full-time entertainer since 1991. And that's the condensed version here. I'll add a few other pieces to that. Uh, one he builds himself as a clean comedian. So let's get that first and foremost, which a lot of people think that could be an oxymoron, but you prove that it's completely not an oxymoron. Uh, and you're a creative keynote presenter. Now, you said you did stand up here in Columbus way back when in the mid-90s or so. And that's when we met many years ago when I was doing open mics. And and, and I think you were getting paid or you were the feature at, uh, on those nights. And uh, uh, you've turned your 
open mic into a wonderful career. You've got an online comedy writing course. You're the one who probably helped push me over the, you need to start a podcast because it was almost two years ago. And I believe it was in DC when you interviewed me for your podcast. And I had no real clue about what a podcast was. And your podcast is School of Laughs and you can find your podcast on iTunes. He's got 135 episodes in the can already out with 91 reviews and 89 five-star ratings. I mean, come on. I mean, he's kicking it. He's got, if, you don't have to be a comedian to listen to your podcast. If you want to get funnier, and I think we all do, whether you're a speaker, you're a teacher, you're a politician, uh, we can all get funnier. And, and I listen to your podcast a lot. I've also taken your online writing course, and it is very, very beneficial, both of them. And you've got how many albums out there, Rick? A nine. Nine. <laughs> nine. Uh, so uh, he, he he's a professional by far. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate that. And the uh, yeah, the podcast, as you know, takes a lot of time, a lot of focus, but I've had fun doing it. And we're a little over 135, 136 episodes, like you said. And this year, though, I, I did scale it back at the first of the year to every other week so I could uh, write some. I've got three books about comedy that I've been wanting to get out for years. <laughs> and so I'm using the off week in between the podcast weeks to get that together. Oh, great. So when uh, when is your first book you, you anticipate it coming out? You know, it's hard to say because it's my first book and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of snags. Uh, I would love to have it out before uh, the fall, but we'll see. It just right now I've got this and taxes are going to take up a big chunk of time and then who knows what else. But uh, every Monday and Tuesday, I'm spending a good four or five hours on the book right now. Uh, that, that's good motivation for myself because I uh, need to start my next book. Uh, and my plan was to start it on February 1st and that's tomorrow. So it is. <laughs> it is. That was when I was going to start at least drafting the outline and, and moving forward on that. So I congratulate you on, on taking that um, adventure as it may be. It's like building a house. You've got a, a due date and you never make it. Uh, but uh, I also look forward to reading your book. You do. I mean, you, you've done so many things uh, over your career. Oh, and I did forget. Now, some in the audience may be too young to know this, but if you've ever watched the, what was that show? Andy Griffith show? Yeah. The old Andy Griffith show. The old Andy Griffith show. They're, they're, who was the deputy there? What was that guy's name? Bernard P. Five deputy Mayberry County Sheriff <laughs> Assistant Mayberry. <laughs> that in the butt. <laughs> so, um, if you hadn't guessed by now, Rick also can do an outstanding 100% nail it Barney Fife on radio and live and in person. Hey, thank you. <laughs> um, so thinking about your time in comedy, your time in improv, and, and we reconnected uh, about four or five years ago at the National Speakers Association annual conference in, in Philadelphia. How did what did stand up teach you about public speaking? What, what how did it help you move your career from? comedy clubs into uh, corporate America? Well, when I was in my 20s, I worked at the comedy clubs all the time until I had an hour of clean stand-up. And at that point, I noticed a lot of comedy clubs were booking me in December to kind of facilitate all the corporate groups that were coming to the t to the club to have their Christmas parties. And you know they were charging those corporate groups pretty big dollars to come in, and I wasn't seeing much of that. And a 
a comedian friend of mine said, hey, uh, you just need to not book anything in December unless you book it yourself directly with these corporate groups. And I found that I enjoyed it. They they treated me better than comedy clubs would treat me. They put me in better hotels. Uh, they paid a deposit, all these great things that you don't have when you're doing comedy clubs. And then I'll, when I got married, thought, you know, I'll see if I can extend doing corporate speaking and, and comedy throughout the entire year. And I left two weeks a month open to see if I could pursue corporate work. And pretty soon I realized I can. And then after we had our first kid 11 years ago, I just said, hey, it's going to be entertaining corporate groups only, maybe a comedy club once or twice a year if it's close to some family or some friends. But besides that, uh, just take the comedy to where the people need it. And that's corporate speaking. They don't have too many options when it comes to a clean performer. Uh, no, they don't. And, and the one thing about doing corporate events, uh, the check's usually bigger and it clears. And Yeah, and it's got a name <laughs> on it. And uh, that name is still alive the, pre- the next week when you try to cash it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I take my hat off to you. I've spending all those years in, in comedy clubs, schlepping across the U.S. And, and honing your act. I mean, it takes a very uh, dedicated and delivered individual to be able to do that. And and uh, for, unfortunately, uh, I was probably I was not that deliberate, even though I still have the love for it, even though I still like to write. I, I think I've been able to blend my humor into you know the, the the stories that I deliver and what I do. But I, I I can't tell you how many times I still have that that urge, and I still want to go back into a comedy club. And, and I do every now and then up here in Columbus. Um, and 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 unfortunately, I haven't seen you perform comedy live in a number of years and every time lately because you were here in columbus in december to do the uh, charity the charity event that dino tropotis and dan swarthout was part of and i just missed you by the day yeah it was just unfortunate it was a they had the two-day event and i was on the front end of it and had a booking the other day and had to get out of town but yeah it's um you know it likening it back to like the UK conversation we're having a minute ago, like doing the comedy clubs is like going through all four years of college and you get an education and you get that experience level from having faced every type of audience and tough crowd. And then when you move into corporate, um, it's, it, I would, wouldn't say it's necessarily much easier, but it's, you're way more focused and you can handle the toughest corporate crowd ever isn't even going to be scratching the surface of a wild night at a comedy club. And so <laughs> Just like UK's freshmen this year are very talented. They're all going to play in the NBA. They're not NBA players now, and I hate when they say, hey, they've got five NBA players on their team. No, they've got five freshmen who are trying to figure it out. And the comedy club was kind of like college for me, comedy college. Just go out there and experience it and take those lessons to the corporate speaking world. So when you, if you remember when you first started out doing comedy, what was the hardest thing that, that you found being that open micer and getting up there and, and, and trying to entertain a crowd? What, what was the biggest hurdle that you had to, to overcome? Well, the biggest thing, and I laugh about it now, is uh, at least seven, eight years into it, I really didn't know why people laughed at some jokes and didn't laugh at the others. And it wasn't until I moved to Columbus, from Columbus down here to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, that I found out because the, the guy that ran the comedy club asked me to teach a comedy class. And I said, man, I wish I could, I wish I could take a comedy class. I'm not sure why my jokes hit some nights and don't the others. And he challenged me. He said, you know, why don't you look at your show, write out your jokes word for word, and then figure out why they get a laugh and why they don't and why they are 50 50. And that was kind of the beginnings of this comedy course that I teach now is I isolated about 17 techniques that if my punchlines had one of those techniques in there, 
it was a joke and it sh- should get a laugh. But if it had two or three of those techniques, it almost was guaranteed to get a laugh as long as the setup and premise was really clear. So early on, I mean, I literally would just keep doing jokes that people laughed at, even though I didn't like the joke sometimes or didn't understand why they were laughing. And then, you know, the jokes that didn't work, I would just try to keep beefing them up and figuring out a way to tell them. Or the the trickiest thing, I guess, was I had some jokes that some nights they destroyed and other nights nothing. And I could not find out why they were inconsistent. And looking back now, I know that those jokes had zero techniques in them. It was all based on attitude or sarcasm. And sometimes the crowd's with you and sometimes they're not. Interesting. And would you also say that one of the first things you learned about doing uh, stand-up comedy as you started moving up the ranks is it LPM, laugh per minute, laughs per minute? Yeah. You know, having having a high laugh per minute, you know, a professional comic's going to have a minimum of six, you know, upwards of 10, sometimes even more laughs per minute, depending on how they tell their jokes. And when you are new and you don't have that, you really stick out in a club. Like you're like, well, that guy was kind of funny, but I'm not sure if he's got what it takes. Then as you get stronger and you, you write more material, you, you start cutting out what you don't need. So I think one of the things that when people start comedy is they have to fill five minutes. So they kind of belabor the point or stall the punchline. And once you get to the feature spot, you know, now you're doing 30 minutes at a club and you're still not in a big hurry to get through your material because you want to make sure you have enough to finish the show. <laughs> Then when they bump you up to the headliner, now you're doing an hour, but it's got to be a higher last per minute than what the crowd has seen before. So uh, every comedian out there that's ever gone through all the ranks of the comedy club will tell you the the middle spot, the feature spot where you're doing 30 minutes is the best spot in the world because there's no pressure to to you know win the crowd over. The MC did that for you. There's no pressure to close the show because the headliner's going to do that. Most of the crowd has had their drinks and their meals served to them. So for 30 minutes, they're totally focused on you. And that's where you really start to develop your confidence. But it's tricky to to grow out of that spot because a lot of comedians will do the same 30 minutes because they want to be so funny that the headliner can't follow them, can't be as funny as them, and then they get bumped up to headlining. But I'll tell you, when I got bumped up to headlining, you know, I had that really killer 30 minutes, and then I was stretching for 25 or 30 more. <laughs> and if I could go back – you know, I would say, hey, during that 30 minute stretch, I would have done that for three more years and just developed way more material and taken more chances because there was really no pressure. So you, you learn you learn as you go through it. But the, the key is those last per minute. If you have more than the guy before you, you're going to come off as funnier. So a, a mutual friend of ours, Dan Swarthout, when we were talking in an earlier episode about comedy and stuff and Dan um it was about a, almost about a year ago. I, I did a, a thing up in, in Detroit, and he was helping me with with some writing. He liked to use these two words with me: word economy. He goes, "That's what stand ups a lot about: word economy. Throw out the words that you don't need, and, and try to just be as precise as you can, and make sure that you have the premise and the setup, which helps in increasing those laughs per minute." Yeah, you know, economy of words is, is super important, and. I found a way to describe it this way to my students, and I think they they get it a little bit quicker. Is you know, comedy is an art, and like say, sculpting is an art, right? So in comedy, say they gave us thirty pounds of words, we would try to use all thirty pounds of words. A sculptor would take those thirty pounds of of clay and chisel away what doesn't need to be there. And amateur comics don't; they try to use all thirty pounds of words. 
but a professional will try to get that down to the bare minimum. So not only can you focus on what they're trying to say, you're not distracted by all the excess. And that's really the key. An artist removes things so you can see the beauty of the art, whereas uh, a laborious person would just use everything to show you that they could do it. Wow. I like that analogy a lot. And in, in thinking about that, uh, because as as a corporate keynoter, yeah, and, and you're funny, um, is there a little bit of a different technique there? I mean, you you may not use. Well, let me ask let me ask the question this way: As you've transitioned out of stand up into corporate keynoting, and you're doing you're telling stories around the, the points you're trying to make, are you using those same uh, techniques uh, of sculpting as you would in in, in stand up, or are you allowing a little bit more of that weight to stay on there instead of thirty pounds? Maybe you're you've got it whittled down to. Um, 20 pounds, where in stand-up, you may have it down to 15 pounds. Yeah, I mean, the one thing I'll say when I deliver speeches, uh, even though there's plenty of humorous points in there and lots of funny stories and jokes, when I'm delivering the contents of the material, it's taken me a while to learn this, but I, I need to slow down and hear it as I'm saying it, as if it's the first time I'm saying it, because that's how the audience is receiving it. And as a stand-up, I would have a, a quick delivery, a pace, kind of almost like a, a rhythm once I start the stand-up show. And I try to do speaking like that. And in some ways, that's good, but I was going too fast past the takeaways. And so the one thing I would say I do differently is is allow them time to process the thought, not be afraid of silence when you speak. You know, I see speakers say, think about this for a minute. And they say what to think about, and they keep on moving. I'm like, <laughs> they do not have a minute to think about it. Right. And until you slow down and leave some of those pockets for, you know, mental interaction, uh, you're just you're just talking at people instead of speaking with them. Having that mental interaction and any type of presentation allows for the audience to stay awake. <laughs> I Absolutely. mean, <laughs> because they're, they're mentally stimulated versus you're talking through them, you're talking over them, you're, you're flooding them with all of these words at, at a pace that they can't process it or you're not allowing them to process. And in this day and age when we've got these very short attention spans, as I like to call it, then they begin the conference prayer. That's when they pull out their cell phone and look down at it and the glow of the cell phone comes on their face and you can see, ah, and they've, <laughs> and they've just tuned you completely out. I love it. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, the conference. <laughs> yeah, the conference prayer. They're sitting there going, oh, my God, this guy is boring the hell out of me. And you, the speaker, are looking out to this audience that they all have their heads down. You're going, I hope your battery dies. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's, you know, I think the challenge of any, you know, corporate event is to keep the audience engaged, to keep them mentally stimulated. To make them laugh helps with that mental uh, that mental stimulation as well as I don't David Nahill I I believe is is his name it says when the laughter ends is the heightening of listening and the more you make people laugh the more they're sitting on the edge of the seats going well what is he going to say next what is he going to say next so so they're they're listening more intently which makes you a much more successful corporate speaker as you are. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, having that interaction and, and giving them credit for participating in the, in the speech, you know, a lot of a uh, lot more groups are a lot younger and millennials want an experience. They don't want to sit there and, and be talked to. And so I think a lot of speakers are missing on making that transition right now. And they're going to be left out if they don't 
find a way to engage, uh, particularly that age group, but also you know to develop parts in your speech if you don't have it now to do so. Right. Do do you bring in? You said you early on before you went more uh, uh, stand up. You were doing a lot of improv. Are you bringing a lot of those improv skills to the stage with you, and those improv exercises to the stage with you? Yeah, I have one program called Listen Up, Laugh It Up. That um, a, a previous client of mine, I've done, I guess, three different programs for him. They're like, we want to have you back. Do you have anything new? And I'm like, well, what's what's the struggles you're having with your company? And they were basically had a bunch of people that all thought they were the best at everything and they were very competitive and they never listened to each other's ideas. And I said, you know, why don't we do a little improv with them and show them that they have to trust each other for the success of the group. And before we get to that part, I'll do 15, 20 minutes of stand up to loosen them up. And I'll talk about the benefits of laughter in the workplace a little bit, but that's just going to kind of grease the wheels for, for their listening. And so, yeah, I do, Depending on the size of the group and how much time I have, I do two to three different improv games with them to kind of get them on the same page. And I did one last week in Memphis, and then afterwards the CEO uh, talked to me in the hallway for probably 30 minutes. He was just so, I guess, amazed that his group of salespeople stopped, and it took him a while. He, you know, he he knew that it was going to be tough for them to do that, but he was amazed at the end that they were able to finally come together and accomplish the goal of the scene. And the exercise, and then he rattled off like 15 more applications I hadn't even thought about. So, you, know, you you teach improv and you know about it. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of little things, trust, team building, and listening, that every company and every organization needs. And sometimes all they need is a facilitator to kind of show them how to do it. Exactly. And I, I, the one thing I'm finding the, the the message of improv that it seems to be resonating more and more out there that that I'm seeing, and I, I did a, a conference this summer, this fall in Nebraska, 400 CPAs, and uh, based it around around the book. But I had them doing these improv exercises, and one of them, if uh, maybe familiar with, is the last word spoken. You say a sentence, and the last word in that sentence is the first word in my sentence, and we try to build this dialogue. Well, one of the participants was a, is the CEO of a of a manufacturing plant in Nebraska. I mean, he just gravitated on that. He just absolutely loved that exercise to the point that he brought me out this month, uh, a couple weeks ago, to work with his sales team for two hours on it. And I went, I, I'd love to do that. But the one thing we, we're not going to tell them is that I'm a CPA because that's just going to, they're going to just completely tune me out. And and we did the whole thing and they loved it. And then when I told them I was a CPA, they, the mouse hit the floor. <laughs> that's, that's funny. <laughs> but I, I, I was going to say, if you told them up front, they would have been auditing you the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it'd be a lot to ticking and no tacking. You know, if I told, and when I do speak to, to groups that um, aren't CPAs, I don't like to, I, I don't want them to get an idea before I even begin and, and put me in that stereotype of being a CPA and begin to tune me out almost immediately. So it was a lot of fun when we told them that I, that I wasn't. But I think, I think that the, the, the art of listening is something that really is resonating out in the corporate market because there's so little of it where we're truly listening versus, you know, listening and then responding without understanding what the person's saying. Yeah, I think we both understand it as, you know, listening to hear, not just to respond. And that's, that's really key. And I tell you, it helps me with my children. <laughs> I listen to hear the the words behind the words, you know, the question behind the question sort of with the kids. Yeah. 
um, with my wife. I make sure that I, you know, I have no choice, but I, I listen. <laughs> I listen and uh, cause she has to put up with me, you know, so I, I definitely, when she opens her mouth, I just, I take a break, but, um, it's, it's really key. Every, any relationship you have, whether it's business, friendship, uh, spousal, whatever, you know, kind of leaving that pocket of silence for them to continue the conversation sometimes is a big difference. You know, if you cut them off, then they're not going to go there. So you have to let them speak their mind all the way out. Exactly. And, and, but then after there's finished, you know, speaking, if you're listening or active listening, as we used to call it back in the day, your your next response may be a question or a statement or something uh, versus bringing your agenda, what was originally on your mind, to allow to really understand what that person, because you said the words behind the words and, and trying to peel that onion back five or six times to find out where's the real issue. Right. Yeah, a lot of times it, it a lot of times it boils down to they feel like they're not being listened to. Exactly, exactly. And um, I don't know if you saw the Stephen Colbert interview with Keegan Michael Key back in August. If you haven't look up, look it up on YouTube. It, it's a wonderful, and they make a lot of references to improv and yes, and and the difference between uh, they said improv is just the Keegan Michael Key said improv is the exact opposite of show business. And he had just, uh, he was out promoting the movie that he did with Mike Birbiglia. Uh, and the name is escaping me right now. Yeah, I need to see that one still. Yeah, and I, I saw it. Um, and and I, I'm just drawing a blank on it. Uh, but it, it, I mean, it, it, I'm hearing more and more references out there uh, to the improv. But I, I want to take that improv piece and bring it back to when you're delivering to an audience, those improv skills that you're using, that you learned into becoming better at what you do. I mean, so the, I think the, some of those who will be listening to this are those who have that fear of public speaking. How did you get past that fear? Was it comedy skills? Was it improv skills? What helped you get over that hurdle that most people would never think about standing up in front of an audience and even having any type of conversation? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, you know, I was, I was never um, shy off stage, but anytime I had an opportunity to get in front of people, even in school, even in grade school, I remember going way back to third grade. Uh, we were talking about presidents, and Jimmy Carter was coming into office, and the the teacher said something like, "Does anybody know anything about Jimmy Carter?" And I, I remember standing up in front of twenty other kids. I'm like, "Yeah, he's a peanut farmer from Georgia." And I said it just like, <laughs> and she just busted out laughing. She's like, "Do more, do more." I'm like, "He's a peanut." Obama from Georgia. Like that's the only thing I knew how to say. So I said it like six more times and she just kept laughing. And then every year there was a couple little spots where I could pick in class to kind of speak up. So I, I had the natural ham thing down, but the, to maybe bring it more relevant when it came to speaking, you know, not in a comedy club, but in front of a group, all that improv definitely helped me out because I knew that if I was truly engaged with the group, there'd be opportunities to explore things. And I think a lot of speakers, they've got their three points. They want to get it done in 45 minutes and maybe do 10 minutes of Q&A and then they're out of there. And so it's really formatted. You know, I have my points that I want to make, but I also have things I want to learn from the group so that I can decide where to finish up the, the speech. It can go a lot of different directions. So, you know, I feel confident in the silence when there's a lot of silence and everybody's afraid to speak up. Then there's also an issue of control somewhere in the room. Maybe the uh, the boss has yelled at people for speaking up before. There's a lot of things you can learn by asking a couple of questions and sitting back and waiting for the answers. 
So if I could translate that, it sounds to me like you're not presenting, you're having a conversation with the audience. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's really key. Like, especially when I'm doing this, listen up, laugh it up keynote in, in the comedy part of it up front, I leave lots of pockets for interaction. And I had an experience with this guy in Memphis. Uh, we were talking about the, the person who's been longest married in the room. I always ask that question with groups. And this guy said he'd been married for 30 years. I said, that's pretty good, man. I said, do you remember when you proposed to her? And he said, yeah, I had the ring in my pocket for two years. And I said, oh, really? I said, and when did you pop the question? He goes, oh, it was a real spur of the moment thing. I, I said, yeah, uh, for two years, it was a spur of the moment thing. And he just, he started laughing and, you know, I just repeated back what I heard, but I listened to hear it. And he came up to me after the show. He's like, you know what? He goes, that thing you said about the spur of the moment, I'm going to remember that from the rest of my life. That was really cool that you, you took that and ran with it. Oh, that's cool. I mean, it floored me. I'm like, this is awesome. This guy's, he really is going to remember that because he came up and told me it. So now it's in his memory bank, you know, but it, now I'm going to remember that and use that as an example when I talk to other groups, because making that one connection with him is, is paramount. So, and the audience can feel when you make a connection with one, it becomes a connection with everybody. Exactly. And I, I, I'm a big believer that anytime you're on stage, whether you're doing a keynote for an hour, hour and a half, or you're doing an all day training session, it should be a conversation with the audience versus a figurehead speaking to or at the audience. Yeah. There, you know, there's probably a handful of speakers where, you know, they're there with the message and everybody came there to see that. And that's fine. And I probably even have a speech like that. But I think when I go to present to different groups, the presentation is about them. It's not about me. I might use examples from my life to help them resonate with similar examples in theirs. But having that that idea going in that this is all about them, so I'm going to make a, a justified effort to bring them in as, as often as possible so they get something out of it. If I just tell them about my experience only, then they'll have to apply that. But if I bring them in during the speech – with stuff they can relate to and immediately, you know, latch onto, then they're engaged right there. And you said it, it's about them. It's not about you. And I think a lot of those who begin their public speaking or start uh, developing the public speaking chops, I, I think they have that inverted at times. It's about them. I'm here to deliver this message to you versus, no, this is about you. I need to find out what message I need to deliver to you, even though whoever called you up and booked you, have you asked even the questions to get behind the scenes to figure out where's the real issue there? Or... I adore you. Do you think you have the ultimate message? Yeah, yeah, it's all important, you know. And yeah, I have this pretty extensive pre-show questionnaire or pre-event questionnaire to help pinpoint some of their major issues or what you know. The, the biggest question you can ask as a speaker, I use this question at the very top of the the questionnaire is, "How will you define if this event is a success?" And then I look at those words they use and make sure that happens. So what what have been some of the words they have used to how do you define this event as a success? You know, sometimes it's as simple as we just want to relax and have fun for an hour and not not be, uh, you know, we want to take a break from our, our job. Other times we're like, you know, we have an issue integrating two companies into one and we have a lot of people trying to figure out where they fit. And so we want an experience that will unite them. And, you know, do some team building. And so that's key. And I'm, then I can tell them, yeah, my Listen Up, Laugh It Up program, that's the best one for that because we're going to be on our feet interacting with people. And we'll make sure that we mix up the groups of the, the current company and the new 
the you know people that merged with you. You know the, the responses vary, and without that though, you know so so that's the first question. And then after the event, when I follow up with them before I ask for a recommendation, I say you know leading up to the event, these were the details that you described that you wanted to take place to have the event be a success. And then if one by one, I'll go through and say, you know, team building. Well, did you feel that during that improv exercise when everybody was laughing and then applauding each other for, for pulling off the event, did that feel like a success to you? And, and basically they can go right down the list and go, yeah, you, you knocked out what we wanted to do. And they're more than happy to give you a, a recommendation. And, and if maybe I thought that I accomplished something and I didn't, that gives them a chance to point it out so I can correct my speech to make it more clear the next time. Yeah, that's that, that's that's key because that that feedback is 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 critical and um, getting it right the next time. And yeah, I've always I'm always asking for that type of feedback that the and I I a lot of times you won't get them to really tell you, but if, if you kind of tee it up to the point, like I, I really enjoy constructive criticism. I want to know what you guys liked, how it worked. And then if there's something I didn't do, just please point it out to me so I, I can work on getting that better. Maybe something that I'm not even seeing that I'm doing uh, that I might see in an evaluation or if I'm lucky enough to, re- to record the session. Yeah. And, you know, another great thing, too, is invite other speakers out to see your program because they're going to give you some straight-to-the-bone information that you need to hear to get better that maybe somebody that hired you wouldn't feel comfortable saying. I don't know, probably 15 years ago, maybe, I did uh, an event with another speaker. We both were doing humorous stuff. I was securing the area as Barney Fife and then did my stand-up, and then he was a Bill Clinton impersonator. Um, but during that event, we had a you know an afternoon AV check, and after the AV check, we're out in the hallway, and he's like, "Hey, I need to talk to you for a minute." I'm like, "Yeah, what's up?" He's like, "Are you going to do this professionally for the rest of your life, or are you just goofing around?" I'm like, "What do you mean?" He's like, "You're dressed in camouflage, Converse high tops, and an old sweatshirt." He goes, "I know it's the afternoon. We're doing an AV check, but you you were in front of the client there. You missed out on an opportunity to make a strong first impression." And I was like, man, you nailed it. I never thought of that. You know, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to show them how good I clean up later on at eight o'clock when I come through the door, you know, <laughs> after I've shaken. <laughs> I literally rolled out of the car after a six hour drive and wandered into the sound check. And I was in my comfy driving clothes, but he's right. I should have changed, should have cleaned up and then came down. Rick, I, I remember that day very clearly. I remember talking to you about that day. And, and I'm glad you took me up on that advice because it, it obviously has worked on your behalf. Well, you know. <laughs> well, you know. I, well, you I've know. got the same advice from a peanut farmer down in Georgia. <laughs> I told that peanut farmer, don't use email. I tell you, don't. I just ask Hillary about email. Don't ever use it. <laughs> That's awesome. But th- that is good advice. And... You got me thinking, because yeah, I, I, I think I have to go back and think of my memory. What I've, what I have worn for an AV check or even before. Um, I, I do try when I do travel. I do try to uh, dress business casual, or as a one friend of mine said, I always wear a sport coat on an airplane, because so many times, so many people aren't wearing sport coats to flight attendants just. Love it when they see somebody dressed business casual with a sport coat. You know, sometimes I get extra perks. I've been upgraded just because I wore a sport coat. Oh, yeah. We could do a whole hour on 
what <laughs> how airlines treat you based on how you look. That's for sure. Yeah, it, 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 really, that's the truth. Um, so. As we begin to wrap up, I have to ask a, a couple of questions here because you've got a lot of uh, war stories of your years uh, doing stand-up comedy and clubs. What's your best story? I mean, when I mean best, probably the most uncomfortable thing that ever happened to you. Most painful? Most painful, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, there's there's two or three things that stick out. I, I, I'll let you pick. I can give you a story about uh, when I worked at the improv group. A uh, a story that's that's much more recent, less than a year old. Okay, uh, let's take the most recent. All right. So, about a year ago, I was going to do my stand up comedy at a golf course for you know members. It was one of those big neighborhoods that were built around a golf course, and everybody just rode their golf cart over to the to the big uh, community center or whatever you want to call it, clubhouse. And so I told her, you know, I do. It's, it's only clean comedy. I'm not going to vary from that. And, uh, you know, the earlier in the evening, the better the show for me and for you. Since you're spending money on it, I recommend, you know, starting right after dinner. And then if they want to party afterwards, that's fine. She goes, sure, no problem. So we booked that and it sells out. And then she calls me. She goes, I, I, actually, on the way down to the event, she calls me and says, hey, uh, we, we sold out the early show. And the people just, they're so mad they can't get to the comedy show can we add a nine o'clock show? And I said, I, you know, I'm not the guy for a nine o'clock show when everybody's been drinking on the golf course all day. It's not going to work. <laughs> she goes, Oh, I've already started taking reservations. I thought for sure you'd be up for, you know, it'd be another paycheck. I said, you know, I can tell you from experience that is it. The first crowd will be fine. It'll be my kind of crowd. And the second crowd, it's just going to be combative. I can tell you right now. She goes, can we just try it? I said, I said, <laughs> I said, you're, I know you're you're not listening to what I'm saying. It's not going to work. And she was just, she's like, I think I'll lose my job if I if I cancel it because I've already taken money. And I said, listen, if you if you really really want to do it, I've told you everything I've told you. I said, we'll start it at nine, and after ten minutes, I'll look at you and go, see, I told you, <laughs> and then you can refund all their money. But it'll be it'll be my fault. It won't be your fault. And so she goes, uh, it'll be fine. So we do the first show just shy of a standing ovation. I mean, they're couples in their 60s, 70s, 50s. Uh, most of them retired already. Just smart, love the clean, family-oriented humor. Yeah. Nine o'clock show rolls around. And I mean, it's people are dropping F-bombs left and right. Every swear word you've ever heard just in casual conversation. As I'm sitting on my guitar, <laughs> some guys are like throwing F-bombs at me. And I go up to the lady, I'm like, nope this might be something that we call it the five minute mark instead of the 10. <laughs> and so, uh, sure enough, I tell my first joke and there's these two 20 something, I mean, 20 year old, 21 year old, I guess, cause they were drinking. They had their flip flops up on top of the table, oh, you know, God. no respect when you bite around them. And after I do my first punchline, he's like, ha 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 ha. Oh. And I just look at him like, really buddy. And then I go on to my next joke. <laughs> And so I look at the planner. I said, it only took 50 seconds to prove my point. I said, uh, I said, here's what, here's what's going to happen, guys. I said, I can stand up here and do my show for an hour. We can listen to this guy uh, with his sarcastic laugh, or we can ask him to leave and I can do my show and we can enjoy it. I said, if he, if he does that one more time, I'm just going to pack up and leave and you guys can get your money back. And so I said, I'll give you a couple minutes to think about it. And I just sat on the stool, let them talk about it. 
I go, here's the, here's the, here's the next joke. Could be the last. I told it. And of course the guy goes, ah, I'm like, all right, it's been a nice night. I just unplugged my microphone, took took my basketball and headed on home basically. (laughs) But the, the, the point of that whole story is I should have never said, let's try it anyway, because I knew ahead of time how it was going to turn out, you know? So there I was for an extra hour hanging out at a place that I didn't need to be at in front of a group that didn't want to, you know, pay respect. And so stick to your guns and know what your audience is and just don't waver on it. And I, you know, I was trying to be super nice to this lady who thought she's going to get fired because she'd already sold tickets and whatever, but I should have kept in that case, my best interest in mind. Right, and gone and gone with your with, with what your gut was telling you versus yeah, I, I didn't I didn't think about that. when you started describing what a nine o'clock crowd at a golf course was going to be like. And I went, oh man, yeah, that's just that's that's like a twelve o'clock crowd at a comedy club on a Saturday night. Yeah, just they've literally been drinking since ten a.m. They're all sunburnt. They're dehydrated. Yeah, they, they haven't eaten, and now they're just they've got you know they're halfway passing out. And that's what you want to entertain? I don't, not me anymore. No, <laughs> not not one bit. <laughs> not, not one bit. Uh, I, and I think I remember one time listening, and we won't have to go into this one, but I, I think one time listening to one of your podcasts, you were talking about the time they put you in this flea bag hotel that there were gangs. Uh, it, it was just, oh, uh, was that Detroit? Uh, Chattanooga. Oh, okay, Chattanooga. Yeah, I, that, you've got some you've got some great war stories out there, and and th- those go a long way. They're, they're they're painful when you're doing them, but they're great stories after the fact. Yeah, I, I apologize. The phone's going off in the background. I can't I can't reach it to turn it off. But yeah, there's that was a life threatening evening, and I'm glad I lived past that one. But basically, the 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 comedy club had put me up at a hotel so bad that when I called the front desk to inform them that I'm looking out my window and there's two guys with handguns sitting on the hood of my car because you called the police, the front desk said, hey, I think they're staying in the room next to you. I can't afford to miss out on that rent for the night. Jeez. So, so literally, I was there wide awake until the sun came up and those guys disappeared. And I drove my car over to the parking lot of the comedy club and waited for the owner to get there to put me in a different place. Wow. Man, maybe one of your books should be talking just about all the war stories that you have. Yeah, I think there'll be an element to that in a lot of these books. Um, I probably should start collecting those stories and, and putting them together. Just, just I think some people don't realize how how crazy it is out there, and it might be a good eye opener. I I think yeah, that to that point, and I also think you know I I, I think a lot of people who who maybe they don't even do stand up comedy or they want to get into it don't realize how much time effort it takes to craft just a joke and how many dead jokes that you've got in order to just get that one decent joke to work on. Oh yeah. Yeah. Jokes will go through a lot of changes and, and all those changes have to be in front of live audiences to figure out if you're doing them right. So you, when you see a comic like Jim Gaffigan, you know, run through a one hour special and nail it, he's been working on that for 11 months doing four to five, maybe six shows a week to get it tight. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I think a lot of people have asked me about, you know, the the Seinfeld um, when he talks about how long it takes him to do a joke. Because the, the perception is, oh, you're just coming up with this stuff, writing it down, and you're up on stage nailing. And it's like, no, it's like polishing a diamond. Yeah, yeah, you've got to compress that sucker forever. And it, you know, this it's the goal of the speaker to be eloquent and make it seem like it's flowing right off the tip of your mind. Same thing with the comedian. You want to make make it appear as if you're thinking of it right on the spot to, to bring some urgency and immediacy to what you're saying. And that takes practice. It takes skill. 
It, it does take a whole lot of work. Well, Rick, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I know you've got to get ready for the big game tonight. Uh, and and it, I have to ask this. I'm sorry. I'm going to take another detour real quick. Your son is how old? Your oldest son is? 11. 11. And he plays the guitar as well? Yeah, so it's funny. The, the day that we brought my daughter home, she was three and a half now. So three and a half years ago, my son noticed that she was getting all the attention and he started banging on one of my guitars. And I said, hey, 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 if you, if you want to play that, I'll get you a little one and I can teach you. And so that was his way of making sure he got papa time every day. And after a year, after a single year, he knew everything I knew on the guitar. And we had to start getting him some lessons. And then before you know it, he's he's with this little kids band that was organized through the guys that teach lessons. And he, he was playing the Hard Rock Cafe, BB King's, doing gigs at the airport and some outside festivals. <laughs> he's just amazing how fast he picked it up. Wow, that is so cool. That's a, that's a great story. And obviously, he got that from you. Um, I, I didn't get any of those musical genes, so I, I, I take my hat off to you and your son. And, and maybe someday we'll see that you guys sell out Carnegie Hall. Hey, maybe Carnegie Mellon first, and then we'll take <laughs> <laughs> Carnegie Hall. Exactly. Well, you know, Rick, I'll put in the show notes, but people can find you at your website at rickroberts.com. Yeah, it's R-I-K-R-O-B-E-R-T-S dot com. And if they're interested in the comedy stuff, uh, schooloflast.com. There's info on the podcast there and lots of blogs and stuff like that if they want to kind of learn a little bit more about adding humor to what they do. And you're proficient on that and on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, so there's many ways to connect with you. I, I uh, would suggest that anybody, everybody in the audience connect with with rick uh follow him learn more that you can about the art of storytelling the art of comedy the art of standing up public speaking because he's nailed it but he just didn't start yesterday it takes a lot of time so thank you rick it's always great to connect with you and maybe we'll see each other uh this summer in orlando at the nsa um, national convention hey i'm planning on being there so let's let's make sure we grab some lunch sounds good Thanks, Rick. Thanks, buddy. I would like to thank Rick again for taking time out of his schedule to give us his thoughts and experiences on how stand-up and improv comedy apply in today's business world. You can find out more about Rick on his website at www.rikrobert.com. And if you want to take his online comedy writing course, go to www.schooloflaughs.com. In episode 43, I interview Kathy Fayok, who is the biz book strategist. As she states on her website, she is your possibility partner providing you with the intense support you need to get your book done. Remember, you can subscribe to my podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you'd like to purchase a personalized signed copy of my book, Improv is No Joke, Using Improvisation to Create Positive Results in Leadership and Life for $14.99 and the shipping is free, please go to my website and you'll see the graphic on the homepage. Please allow up to 14 days for shipping. Thank you again for listening and remember to use the power of listening to understand to better connect with those around you.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.